Hello and welcome to Cross the Bridge with the Artificial Hipsters. My name is Kieran Casey. And my name is Jim Corbett. So just before we start, Jim, uh, one of our many listeners contacted us after last week's show. Last week, we covered off all of those things or some of those things that annoy us about football at the moment. And Shane got in touch. Uh, and I just because of some aspects of this, I think were relevant and funny. And first of all, he tells us that we are now an integral part of his Thursday. Great to hear that, Shane. Um, and really enjoyed the episode. However, first and foremost, says Shane, I cannot believe that you did not mention short numbers. The starting 11 should wear 1 to 11. End of story, non-negotiable. It does have a practical reason. I can see who started the game, roughly where a player should be positioned. Also, I think there's something magical about making the starting 11, which the numbers represent. Apart from any of that, it's just not right. And I'm only rationalizing my instinct because I feel like it. My basic re reason is seeing a number 48 on the football pitch is like listening to a radio station that's not quite tuned in properly. Somebody fix that effing thing before I lose my mind. Yeah. I know what he means. I do know what he means. And it yeah. crossed my mind. It is something right. we slipped up on last week. Yeah, we did, yeah. And I think uh, I have a certain sympathy with it, but it's like um, it doesn't apply today. I mean, first mm. of all, the squad mm. announced for every game is, you know, 20-odd people. They mm. can have however many subs it is. I mean, I remember going to watch the Spurs in the early 60s, but there's no such thing as subs. Mm. Someone got injured, he just hobbled around or went off and you played with 10 men. Um, so it is different. That system of 1 to 11 numbering was worked out when every team had a goalie, two defenders, three midfielders, and five forwards. Mm. But wasn't it also, like uh, is it also something to do with the the names on the back of the jerseys? Because mm. uh, I could be picked in different positions. So they, if by Shane's logic, if I played right back one day, I'd be wearing a two, left back the next day, I'd be wearing a, a three. If I was in different positions in midfield. So now they have a number. Their name is on that number. And I suppose that promotes the jersey sales. But I do have sympathy with with, uh, with what he's saying. They do still do it in rugby, rugby union, of course. And do they have the names on the back of the jerseys in rugby union? Actually, that was the point my wife made. The, uh, the Irish game, no, they didn't. No, yeah, yeah. Anyway, a couple of more points from Shane. It's a long message, but uh, he it agrees with us that hurling is a brilliant game, but he puts it at number two. American football is number mm. one for Shane. He goes on to complain about the uh, over-intellectualization of football, particularly by uh, some of the analysts. Um, and kind of related to that, he went to see Man United playing the Aviva. He spent £170 on two tickets. Um no Rashford, no Fernandes, no Anana, no Mount. He only went to bring Fehan, his 11-year-old, to see them. The only players I knew were players he's trying to get rid of. The Aviva was full. I really felt United disrespected their Irish following. There's a lot of history and tradition in Ireland with Liverpool, Leeds, Arsenal and United. Particularly, particularly but the clubs don't seem to be too bothered. Probably was very disappointing that they did. Well, I think um, United have been taking the money under false pretenses for ages, right? Um, as Tottenham were last season. But I mean, I think uh, uh, it, you're, he's right. I mean, it's all to do with commercialism and who's playing and why are they playing and 
do they deserve to be playing and so on. But I think one of the things is team selection is such a political process now. Mm. Um, even in teams, I mean, even with, with Tottenham, we're trying to get, well, anyway, uh, Angie's trying to get away from it. Um, it's still very political about who's playing and mm. why they're playing and so on. So, But on the general point of the number system, oh, sorry, no, just go back to his point about the money. Football isn't good value for money now. No. You know, I'm I'm an old age pensioner, so I only pay half price for my season ticket, which is 45 quid. So that means yeah. I, I get, you know, 20 home games. So they're costing mm. me 20 something quid a, a throw. That's not bad, really. But as soon as you're not buying that ticket, as soon as you're Joe Soap from down the road mm. and you're coming in to pay, especially if you have to buy one of these bloody uh, hospitality packages, that 45 quid yeah. turns into 100 in yeah, crazy the twinkling of an eye. Well, even Shane here, he spent 85 euro each, 170 euro on two tickets. So 85 yeah. euro for an 11-year-old to go to see a friendly. A lot um, of money. Yeah, a lot of money, especially when those players don't show up. And just finally, because one of the things we talked about, which I think was a resonated with Shane, was that the passion is 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 and the heart and soul is coming out of the game a little bit. So uh, he makes this point. He's a big-time follower of the NFL, which he mentions. And I can tell you, despite what perceptions there might be, they really make a big deal of history and tradition. The players know they're part of something big. I think Liverpool still has this to a certain extent, but the soul is completely disappearing from the game. So thank you, Shane. And anybody else has any yes, indeed. We're, we're always love to hear from you. As they, yeah. they used to say on an old uh, BBC radio programme, Round the Hall, which was famous during the 50s and the 60s, a letter has flooded in. <laughs> but keep those letters floating in <laughs> um, okay so dramatic switch of gears here um, yeah. so for some time Jim you've suggested that we talk about economics and economic policy and uh, well today's the day yeah. um, I'm going to ask you to set this up and frame it like right. maybe the, the question is What's going on at the moment in the world of economics? What's your state of the nation address for these islands right. in terms of economics? My state of the union address, or no, the union is the wrong word in this context, isn't it? but the state of the islands address, um, is that governments are floundering around trying to think up clever ways of addressing the appalling financial problems which have beset them often through no fault of their own, through the war in the Ukraine and the, um, you know, uh, uh, asylum seekers and all that stuff, which has cost, and COVID, of course, hmm. which has cost us eye-wateringly sums of money, more than we've spent on anything else. Hmm. COVID set the trend. And what it set a trend of was, A, ignoring how much something costs, and I don't just mean, you know, the health service obviously was going to incur major, mega costs, although I don't know why, because most of his hospitals were closed. Um, but there was an enormous expenditure, and it was mainly through lost income, a lost profit, lost taxes, because people weren't working. And they were at home for a big chunk of the year. Or and there were significant subsidies to pay for people not to work. Yeah, and so that's that's... That gave us a massive increase in expenditure at a time when there's no money coming in. 
at all, very little. And so we resorted to borrowing, which is often, it's a very bad idea if you're borrowing for current expenditure, which is exactly what we were doing. Are you uh, talking about both governments now? Or, or, yeah, or... I am actually. Both governments did the same thing. So um, what I think that's then done is it's cut the, the, the sort of political line or political recognition that there is a cause and effect process between government expenditure, taxation and economic well-being. Mm. There is a link there. Mm. And the link has always been expressed in terms of money supply. Mm. So if you reduce the amount of money going into the economy, mm. you will get deflation. If you then increase it dramatically through artificial expenditure, pretend expenditure, borrowings, that will be inflationary. And high taxes will also be inflationary. Mm. as well as being deflationary. I mean, it gets all these shinries get very complex. Yeah. Um, and so I think we are in a stage now, and I'll give some specific examples in a minute, where both in Britain and Ireland, elected representatives seem to see it as their job to make sure that more money gets spent. And they only see one side of the coin. I know, you know, difficult times, difficult decisions, and and we want to try and protect people, especially if they're not so well off, as, as best we can. But the fact remains, if we don't have proper money being generated, wealth being generated, mm. and that comes, that's a byproduct of profit in an economy, if we don't have that being generated and we're just floating on a sea of debt, which both countries are still floating on a sea of debt, mm. the, the the Irish one is much lower than the English one, mm. but it's still big enough. Um, I have got the actual figures here somewhere, which I won't bother to look for at this moment. Um, and that that the break of the break in that link between taxation. Um, uh, uh, the operation of the economy and expenditure by the government, the breaking of that essential equation is a very, very bad thing for the health of our economies going forward. Let me just pause you for a second. So, so we're just kind of so the amount the government takes in through into the exchequer through all different forms of taxes. Mm -hmm. I think in Ireland is somewhere in the region of 65 billion. It's it's a huge number. And the amount then the government then spends on the provision of services, maybe capital projects, and um, but essentially the business of government and all the associated yeah. departments. Yeah. Um, and that's that's set in 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 you know annual budgets. And as a result, the government then decides that we can. Um, make a decision around redu reducing taxes or the, whether they reduce USC in the next budget or or, uh, or we'll increase. So, the, you know, they, they, there is a surplus, and I think there is a surplus in Ireland. So the amount that's coming in through the taxation is greater than the amount that we are spending. 
Um, so yeah. we have a surplus. What do we do with that surplus? You might say we'll use some to pay down debt. And you might also say that we'll invest in capital spends, spend, or you might also say that um, you know, we'll increase services or we'll in increase some of the payments that we have in, in our social welfare system. So like I, I, I'm still unclear as to your concern and your description of the polit politicians floundering around trying to spend. Okay. Uh, when was the last time? you heard an Irish or an English um, politician suggest that uh, rather than, actually it does happen in England sometimes, but I can't remember the last time I heard it in Ireland, um, rather than increasing taxes to pay for public expenditure, uh, we should have a drive on efficiency to make sure that what we do spend is spent most effectively. Hmm. Now, that is absolutely demonstrably not the case. I agree with that. And that That's always been the case. Quite. Yeah. But it's it's very badly the case now. Okay. Because you've got – let me give you this example. One example. There will be more, but this is one from um, last week. When a report came out, it may surprise you to know that in London um, – one of the bridges in London, uh, which was Hammersmith Bridge, which is about uh, about 100 years old, a bit more than that, mm. um, in current spending terms, it cost $9 million to build. Right? right. They are now renovating, i.e. painting it. That's going to cost $30 million in ah. this year and a further $200 million over the course of the next three years. Now, how the hell can they justify spending $230 million over one year uh, or just a few years for painting a bloody bridge? That's ridiculous money. Mm -hmm. And before you run off and say, oh, yeah, well, but, you know, it's very complicated doing bridges and this is difficult and that's difficult. Anyway, what have we got to measure it against? I'll tell you, well, I'll tell you what we've got to measure it against. We can measure it against the cost to the Indian government of landing a satellite on the moon the other day. That cost less than half no the price of renovating Hammersmith Bridge for no a way. journey several thousand times longer. It's a great, it's a great, it's a great statistic. Right? Can that, I just, okay, yeah, go because it's a great statistic. There's more on that. example. Okay, <laughs> keep them coming. Um, but one of the things that comes into my head, and, and I'm not trying to just be pedantic and say, is that not a local authority and not a, a national government decision? Is that not the borough of whoever, Hammersmith? But it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter. Um, doesn't matter at all. No, but do we have this situation as well, particularly with economics, where politicians claim to have more influence than they actually have? And, yes, and that's they, always they, true. They do that during the election cycle, and they do that, yeah. you know, yeah. whether in or out of government. Yeah. And then when they're in government, they understand that they can't actually influence things to the extent that they think they can. No, once the Humphrey gets hold of them, they're in trouble. Well, exactly, exactly. I'm watching some reruns of, uh, of yes, that. So am I. <laughs> <laughs> but, but even even the Sir Humphreys, as I'd say that that's been, you know, that's exacerbated now with all the other institutions and semi-states and other quangos that are out there. So 
I don't know, in the back of my head, I'm thinking that there's going to be some conservation architects that need to be involved, historic, uh, historic, oh, and, and there's some merit to these things that, that we don't want to destroy anything that has a heritage value, but the figures don't stack up. They just don't stack up. But is it, is it the case that actually the politicians claim to be in charge and we sometimes look to them and expect them to be in charge, but actually nobody's in charge when it comes to those. Well, I th- I th- yeah, nobody's in charge is true. We don't have a minister th- for bridges. You know, no. if we had a minister for bridges, we could shout at that minister for bridges. No, but you see, if we can't have a minister for bridges, then what we need is someone who's going to be held responsible. Now, it, it, going back to Yes Minister, there was a great episode a while ago which said uh, where Jim Hacker came up with this wonderful idea and he said, when you're building something new, the department concerned should be prepared to do a full cost-benefit analysis Mm. and show what is to be gained, what are the targets, you know, what are the interim targets and so on as we go through. So we can constantly be reassured that this thing is happening on time, on budget, and we're all happy. And Sir Humphrey nearly had a fit. He said, good God, you can't do something like that. How do you do it? It'll take ages to work it out. We can't do this. You know, it guts against the very, you know, the very being of, of local authorities doing things. And, of course, Hacker says, well, it's the local authorities spending all the bloody money. Mm. And it is. But what happens first, and this is a problem with localism, actually, that we, we, we've got to crack somehow. Happens here, happens in, in the UK. Once you put local people in charge, they all want to be boss. So all the councillors want nice big offices. They all want to be paid and think they should be paid more. They all want a staff. They all want a research staff. They want a secretary. They want a car. And they don't get all of those things, but they get a lot of them. And And so before you know where you are, that tied in with what I was talking earlier about the desire of governments these days to run everything and and regulate everything, it just means the number of people employed to do the same thing goes through the roof. Mm. Well, you know, we, that, I mean, you, you, you outlined that perfectly in, in the, the part that we did on the, the illness of the health system. Yeah and the introduction of the regulation. But also, and I do agree with you, and maybe should bring this back to the economics of it, but I do agree with you that in Ireland, we constantly put more and more money into our health system. Um, and there's never a conversation about efficiencies. No. Never any drive, as no, you no. put it, for, for efficiencies. Now, that's a bit unlike Hammersmith Bridge, where accountability could be confused. We do have direct possibility in 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 the health system where we do have a minister and a health department, and yeah, but don't don't forget on. don't forget one key thing. In local authorities in um, Ireland have very little free space to make many decisions because they don't have any money. Yeah, other than that which is specifically granted to them for a specific purpose. In the UK, they do have a lot of clout. Yeah. Especially if they've got one of these newfangled mayors who and they can lay claim to vast swathes of public money in order to make their visions come true. Mm-hmm. And the theory of that was if we could offload some of this, 
onto these local authorities or onto elected mayors, the blame comes off central government. We don't have to do that. So logically, you should say, well, if the mayor is now going to take on functions that were previously under the department or previously maybe under previous council departments, we can now get rid or slim down those departments. Mm. And that's where the saving will be made because we never, ever do that. Does that happen? Never do that. that. Happened? Never, 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 ever happened. The, the budgets just go up. I'll give you a quick example. Hospital I know uh, 10 years ago had six people working in its HR department. All right. It's now called something like, you know, the HR Better Lifestyle, uh, you know, Wellbeing Department or something. I don't know. At the moment, they've got 18 people. Mm. So it's gone up by three. The number of, of employees has hardly gone up at all. And then you think, what's going on? Why? Mm. And it's the same with health and safety. You take the responsibility away from general managers, which is what I was trained to be, and you take the, a lot of the HR responsibility away from general managers. Mm. Mm. Uh, and you create a massive department, and the clues in the title is called risk, risk, the Risk Avoidance Department or the Risk Department, and it's risk avoidance, not risk management. They don't manage risks. They avoid risks. And that means that things stop happening. So you pay a lot of money for things not to happen. Now, I do, I do agree that I think there's been um, just a rapid increase in regulation, not just, though, in government level, I think in the private sector as well which is strangling innovation and strangling getting stuff done. Um, and, and just when you were talking there, but just that quantum of regulation that we have in Europe, I think it was Dan O'Brien, I uh, heard him on the radio this weekend, and it was a lovely line. Um, the US innovates, China imitates, and Europe regulates. Absolutely right. Yeah. But... Um, we bring it back to economics. So, yeah. the, um, you, you described it that politicians are floundering to kind of try and find, you know, ways of spending money or ways of, 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 but they're not focusing on inefficiencies. Essentially, that's your, your, your. Yes, so that's not that's not all that they're not doing. They're certainly not focusing on inefficiency, mm. and they're not asking themselves the essential question of why are we doing this. Do we really need to do this or have we already got the wherewithal to do it and we're just not bothering? Mm. And very often that's the answer. But, I mean, in terms of efficiency, another example I'll give you is um, hospital building in Ireland. Mm. Now, hospital building in Ireland, doesn't happen that often that we build a big hospital. We have actually built quite a few of them over the last 20 years. But generally, you know, it's not uh, been as dramatic as it was in the UK a few years ago. They've stopped doing it now. It costs him a lot of bloody money. But let's take the much vaunted National Children's Hospital. Mm. Now, for God's sake, that went through so many different iterations, to use a bureaucratic word, which just mm. means mistakes. Um, and it was going to first, it was going to be in one place because that's where Bertie wanted it, and it was going to be somewhere else, and it was going to be somewhere else, and now it's wherever it is. Mm. Um, and it's going on to a main hospital site. Now, that should immediately give some reduction in overheads. You haven't had to buy the land. 
you've got existing contracts in place for cleaning, catering, security, whatever, and you can probably expand those at a, quite a good um, unit rate. Uh, and a big thing you don't have to do is to reinvent the hospital. Now, children's hospitals, frankly, are no more complicated than ordinary hospitals. Mm. You know, okay, you need a different skill set in the staff, so that's fair enough, and you that, that's not easily transferable, so that might well cost a few quid to get all the staff in the right place. And it doesn't, you're not wasting money if you get pay money to get good staff in place. So that's uh, one thing. But basically, you know, the wards can be the same size. They're often smaller, actually, because the rooms are sometimes smaller. But that's a mistake. You should have big rooms for children so that their parents can stay with them hmm. um, and things like that. But that's just detail, you know, in the, in the buildings. So why do we reinvent the wheel every time when we could easily go across the water where they spent a lot of money and a lot of time developing a system called Nucleus Hospitals, which is like an old-fashioned AI version of hospital buildings. Mm -hmm. If you buy the Nucleus Hospital system, you will get everything you need to design it because mm -hmm. it's already designed. It comes in cruciform units, and you just plonk down there. I think each one's got about 200 beds in it. You plonk down. as They all interconnect. So you can plonk them down in any configuration you like, wherever you are, so they can be accommodated. You can specify everything per perfectly. You've got the right amounts. You've got the right regulations being covered. You've got the right square footages, the right amount of storage, blah, 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 blah. It's been done loads of times. It's been proven to work all over the UK, but certainly including my old hospital in the UK. Um, but it's also been proven to work in other countries. And if we'd done that, number one, that hospital would have been built in half the time, less than half the time it's taken for this. And number two, it would have been done for a fraction of the cost. This hospital is going to Vincent's, isn't it? The uh, James. children's hospital. James's, James, that's right. Yeah, yeah. It looks mm. to me at the moment, they're talking about two billion quid mm. for a small, relatively small hospital, because it's not huge. Mm. Um, it's a very more, impressive building. I, 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 of course I just, it's an impressive building. If I, you get flashy architects in to yeah. put all loads of curly cubes on it, yes, it will look fantastic. Yeah. But there's, you know, the, the, I've worked in nucleus hospitals and they are great. Mm, They're designed mm. by experts and professionals, people who know how to do it, and people who know hospitals are professionals in hospitals. It's been designed by all them over years and years and years, and it works. Yeah. Now, for some reason, every time we build a hospital, they did it here with, with Cork University Hospital, the maternity unit, built yeah. a massive new maternity unit. It looks great. It's brilliant. Fine Why did we design it from scratch? It sounds like nobody else has ever built a maternity unit. Why do we have to keep doing this and getting the most expensive architects and the most expensive designers and it costs a fortune? Let's break these things down in terms of the decision-making process and, and examine which elements politicians can influence. So I think that 
I think the location of the of the hospital, any hospital in this case, yeah. the hospital, but any hospital, I think you do need to have lots of knowledgeable people that can have their input into it, so that they can need expert advice on on where the best location is. And and I think it moved around from Blanchardstown to various places, various yeah, it did. the Matter Hospital was 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 at one stage. The the fact that it would be co-located with a a general hospital, I think, was was kind of a precondition. Um, yeah, it makes makes a lot of sense. And I think it, it does make sense. And then James just was picked. I don't know why, but but was that a political decision? And, and, and so that's decision number one. Decision number two. Never never we're going to locate it there. Um, are we building from scratch, or are we going to take up as you described? You know, here's here's a case study, or here's a model that we can just adopt. We can buy these designs, and we no, can... they're building from scratch. And they're building from scratch because no, no I know they did. Sorry, I, but what, right. what, what was that? Was is that a political decision? Is Almost it... certainly, because one of the things about Irish public services is that they don't like getting ideas from across the water. Is we that are a politician, James? Yeah, I've it? heard people... Yeah, a lot of them. I've heard, it, them it, I've heard them say it. We are a modern political economy, democracy in Europe. We don't need to take lessons from anybody. Well, actually, sometimes we do. And sometimes everybody needs to take lessons. It's not no, just, I, not I, just I agree, Ireland. I agree, and I, I don't deny that that mindset may, may, be, may exist. I just want to bring it back. Was that a politician who said we're going to build this from scratch? I would. Or was yes. It... Yes. Right. Okay. But in fact, everybody likes to do it anyway because they all want to be the best. They all want to have the nicest looking hospital, the okay. most modern, the one that's okay. got the most bells and whistles. But then let's go into the, the the third aspect of that. We sit down. We request a tender. We evaluate the best responses, and we negotiate a contract. Mm-hmm. Is there any politician involved in that? Well, now there's a question. Um, when what the way it works normally is that internally, a a statement of case will be prepared, right within the uh, and the, the HSE, bless its cotton socks, and and HSE estates have got a properly worked out process for capital development that starts from nothing and works it up, and at various different stages in this. You have to get it approved. So you get the first bit starts at quite local level, quite small level. Can we have permission to develop this idea, please? And that decision will probably be made at a sort of a unit or, or regional level, should we say. And then uh, you carry on and you get to another big, uh, you haven't spent much money so far. You get another big one that says, right, we've more or less, we've worked all this out now, we've scanned this out. We're going to need X hundred beds, so many staff, so many square feet, blah, 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 right? And that then goes upstairs again, and they look at it, and that's where people start to get involved, politicians, because, um, well, not so much now, because now the uh, the old health boards have gone. Mm-hmm. Um, the politicians don't get so much of a say, but there are politicians around who get consulted or on different planning boards and so on. And they might say, this number of beds you've given, and it's actually always a good idea, if you know what you're doing, to interrogate the number of beds. 
Now, that's because I'm an expert and politician's yeah. son. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. I mean, so it's, it's if I went in and said, I could go and say anything, I need 50,000 beds. And a politician say, That's a lot. And I'd say, Well, you might think so, you know, deputy. But what about this factor, that factor, this factor? Only me and the other professionals know this is total bullshit that's coming out of here. Right? Mm. But they don't. But to be fair, that doesn't happen in a major way, but it does happen. Like if it's the difference between 450 beds or 500 beds, mm. um, how can you justify going up or down? And in fact, for a long time, it's very difficult to justify putting the numbers up, but difficult to justify inside the HSC because they had this mantra, as did the Department of Health, that the numbers of beds could be reduced all the time. And we know where that got us. Um, so... But just bring it back to because what I'm trying to, yeah. I suppose what I'm trying to explore with you is the extent to which politicians influence these decisions around inefficiencies. Right. Okay. At some point, this is going to go up to the Department of Health, mm. and they are going to to make a decision in principle as to why well, you've probably spent about three or four hundred thousand quid on fees at this stage, but you say. In principle, is this going into the National Capital Programme mm. or not? And it sits there, usually sits there for a couple of years without anybody makes a decision, so they'd have to spend the money. But once things start getting into the National Capital Programme, that's where you start to get a political input mm. because this is the one big pot that all capital developments in the state come from. Mm. So... You know, if we're saying, and I mean, at one point, for example, everybody said there's no point putting anything up for the next couple of years because of the National Children's Hospital. Mm. That's going to soak up all the money. And it did, um, although they then borrowed some more so, for COVID. So we, in the mercy, we got some more pets. But um, no, but the politicians then do get involved. And okay. that's where the big arguments take place about usually in the health committee or, or wherever. Uh, or in closed closed mm. doors, where uh, they say, "Oh well, you know, we can't, we haven't got five billion to build this new hospital. We'll we'll fifty million do you?" And that sort of whole trading goes on. Which are still operating on a kind of a level that is about establishing some principles here of out of the the pot of money we have, we'll take this chunk and go off and develop a hospital or build a hospital, and this chunk will be. For a new motorway, and this chunk would be to extend a rail line. So you're you're at that kind of oh yeah, it's all I'm rattling about this. But then then you say okay, there's a, a budget in principle to go and and it could be anything, and not just the children's hospital. It could be anything. Yeah, and and we go out then as a nation into the commercial sector, and we say we want tenders to come in, um, and we put out our RFP, and we've got all our evaluation criteria as to how we'll select a, a, a winning response and we get into a negotiation now politicians are not involved and by the way you know I, i'm not sure don't this be exactly the case but i doubt they have the wherewithal to be involved in commercial negotiations i'm absolutely with, sure that they're not and they that they're yeah. not involved and that they haven't got it yeah but the yeah. point is that everybody in the system knows that at some point if something goes wrong... The politician swings. Yeah, and so they don't want to be the person who actually fires the bullet. 
right? Because that don't that won't work for them either. Because the next minister comes in and says, "I'm not having that nonsense. You can you can bugger off. You can go down and run all the community services in Wigan or somewhere." You know. So everybody runs away from taking accountability. Yes. And and the only person who carries the accountability is somebody who hasn't got the competence or the wherewithal to really be hands-on in terms of the decision-making yeah. and, and may inherit a decision by, by dint of taking over a particular portfolio. Yeah. Is it no wonder that we have gross inefficiency? Is, no. it, not, is, it, is it not a reflection on our system of governing Yes. Than, than, than anything else. That's, yes, it is. It's absolutely that. And you see, what we should be able to do is to say, we'd, and at one time this was true, we'd have a series of very powerful and knowledgeable civil servants, mm. and they would make the decisions, mm. and ministers would be able to rely on them. Yeah. And they would do their best to make the right decision, because if they didn't, they knew Zeb was on the block. Yeah. Now, no heads go on blocks now. But is there rarely. competence there, Jim? So the, the, the second thing is accountability. But the first thing yeah. is competence. Well, you so- can develop competence within the service. I mean, you can you can develop competence by insisting that people are properly trained for the job, um, that they've done stuff on project management, that they understand, you know, how to manage staff. Um, they understand how to manage other professionals. You you can do that. You can buy that expertise. You could send them all off to, you know, the Smurfit Business School or something, and, and they'd learn those things hmm. fairly easily. In fact, in, in the NHS, they do do that. They have specific senior manager program, programs and modules in lots of business schools in uh, yeah, no, I, I do in think the UK. That- I, I do know that there is an investment in in high level training in, in both the public and 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 the civil. Yeah, but are we are we training them to do the job, or are we training them in, training them in the latest go to idea? I think we're. we're I, I certainly I, I don't know it to be as widespread, but certainly one what I've witnessed and experienced that the latest. And most, I think, well thought out training programs for leaders that the private sector are buying in uh, are also being purchased, if you like, by by the the, the public sector. Well, I hope so, but yeah. I doubt if the, the, but, but the cost of those things is usually eye watering. Well, it, it it does take time as well for that mm. to to wash. But that's that's, the, that's the only way to do it. And in the UK, that is what they did, mm. and they introduced a national trainee scheme. And a lot of people went off. I mean, I did. I didn't do the National Trainee Scheme, but I had a specialist degree. And um, But I went off and did a, a business school thing. And um, a lot of other people did that. And and that's how it works, you know, and, and you, you do develop. But I think the biggest thing, from my point of view, and this is, this is getting a bit more, uh, this is in the nitty-gritty of what you're saying. When I started, which is in the late 70s, in the health service in England. It was always impressed upon me. I started off in a, in a district headquarters, and it was a very administrative job, really boring, taking minutes at meetings and things like that. Um, and the boss, who had been, who was a, a failed hospital manager, actually, well, I don't think he realised he'd failed. Uh, everybody else did. Uh, he'd been put out to 
to uh, to grass in this new area health authority thingy, which they jumped up in 1974. Now, I, I got there a couple of years after that. But he was a very nice bloke. But um, he always said to me, don't spend your career in headquarters, Jim, because I was very wet behind the ears in those days. And I said, oh, no, where should I? He said, get out into the hospitals, because that's where you get the practical experience. And you learn. And he was dead right, absolutely right. So we were all called general managers. Eventually we became general. We were just administrators at first. But after a few more reforms, yeah. this was enshrined. General management is the thing. And so the idea was that the general manager of the hospital would have a broad-ranging responsibility, mm. but they needed operational people to support them because once you start doing heavy-duty, high-level management in a £200 million operation, as, as uh, our hospital was 30 years ago, um, it's the operational bit that goes wrong. So everybody has to do the operational bit. You have to run the switchboard. You have to know how the catering works. You have to know how the cleaning works. You have to be involved in the nitty-gritty of doing a few tenders and so on and so forth. Because when you get to be old and vulnerable, or venerable, I should say, like me, then you know. Yeah. You know how to do things. You know where the pitfalls are. Yeah. And you can stop a lot of it. The problem we've got now is that we've got so many beautifully qualified people with strings of letters after their name who don't know how to push a broom and don't know what it takes to run a poultry department or what it takes to specify a, a, a cleaning contract. Mm. And so they just don't know. Mm. And so they rely on other people. So does that, that, when, you, when you bring that up then at, to, to a national level, it seems there's been a, a shift in the way in which we introduce people into the public civil service. Yes, it has. Uh, how we train them, um, that idea of them getting their hands dirty and building from the ground up a knowledge and experience, that that's changed. Somewhere along the way, that changed. and maybe It, that- it has, yes, definitely. Yeah. And I think, you know, you don't have to do that forever. I mean, I, I actually loved operational management stuff so i I did it for longer than i should have done to be honest yeah but um i think you should say to everybody if you're coming in for a career in the health service and you're thinking you might be here for five or ten you know 20 years whatever it is you must be able to show you've got at least five years experience in an operational job doesn't have to be in hospital but in an operational job where you've been responsible for getting something produced or running something or providing a service or whatever it is, do that for five years and then show us mm. that you've done a management s- specific qualification after that, whether it's an MBA or whatever it is. Yeah. There is a professional qualification for yeah. hospital managers in England as well. So, so bring it back, Jim, bring it back to, the, you set up this conversation when we started in economics and the... Yes, I knew this would happen. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, 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 you know, the fact that there is insufficient focus on trying to get more value for money through driving effectiveness and efficiencies, and instead we're just putting good money, you know, I won't say good money after bad, but we're just putting money into places where something else is required. Mm-hmm. I I still struggle to 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 point the finger solely at politicians. I, I think I'd have to I'd have to kind of, you know, turn a little bit on the media who play that game as well of 
you're the Minister of Health, I know you were in the Minister of Health for six months, but... Well, that's democracy. Yeah. Well, okay, but there's, there's, there is governing as well. Yeah, it? but you see, what they don't do, well, maybe they do do it, I don't know, but as a, if I was a minister and I was going to go into some press conference about some god-awful thing that had happened, if my civil servants didn't have me brief to the gills and that's my job as a minister i'm supposed to show that i'm on top of this well if i'm not on top of it i shouldn't be a minister and those civil servants who've been standing behind me smirking behind their hands because i've buggered up some question should be sacked but 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 we've already established we've already established that nobody's carrying accountability yes that's true and the only person who does in our system is the minister. Part of the accountability is the minister. Mm-hmm. And we've already established that that minister is very unlikely to have the competence or the wherewithal to be actively involved and to have preempted the wrong I, decision that was made. Now, I don't expect a minister to be able to say off the top of his head, What's wrong with this particular hospital development? Because he won't know. There's no way he could know. In fact, there's no way most people could know. Um, but what we do require is a system that accepts that because he is the one who carries the can, he is the one that we have to protect and we have to make sure that he – and not – I don't mean protect him just to stop him getting into trouble – Protect him in the sense of making sure he's been given the right information, making sure he's been warned, making sure that, you know, we've always done yeah, but, the, but, the but that, thing. So, Jim, that, that, that assumes that an explanation of a situation is going to get the minister, just as long as they go out armed with all the facts of what happened, that that's going to get them out of a sticky situation. Where in well, it might be difficult. It's... It would be decisions that have been made. Decisions that have been made. Take what we just said there about the, the children's hospital and, and three levels of decision-making. Where are we going to locate it? You know, decision number one. Are we going to build it from scratch or are we going to adopt one of these modular approaches? Yeah. Or are we going yeah. to decision number two. Decision number three, who are we going to get to build this for us? Well, that's mm-hmm. where we get into trouble with, with the ministerial approach because – you know, I, if I was a minister and I was put up because something had gone wrong, you know, the National Children's Hospital had fallen down on its first day of operation or something, and they said to me, well, who's responsible for this, minister? If my first words out of my mouth would be, not me, and the second ones would be, what about all those bloody people who've been involved in this over the last 20 years? Why aren't we talking to them? It's their fault, not mine. But we never do that. No, we don't. We never do that. But you and wouldn't we get away with that. But you wouldn't get away with that. Why not? Do you think do you it's think, the truth? I, I agree with you. I totally agree with you. So we don't want to tell people the truth then. I, I do think in this space of accountability, there is a general acceptance that in situations, and it's rare I'm defending politicians, but in situations, ministers are carrying an accountability that they just couldn't, in all honesty, that they couldn't they couldn't carry. This is going to bring us round, back round to what we were saying earlier about local authorities. Mm. Because one of the things is, of course you can't expect a minister to know, in a, in a big government department, 
to understand everything that's happening in the department, everywhere in the country, when nobody tells him. Or frankly, even if I do tell him, because mm. he probably can't can't keep up with it all. Wait, so wait, what? what sorry, so, it's not just about knowledge; it's about decisions that have been made. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he might not. I mean, he was probably almost certainly not responsible for any of them. No, exactly. So I wasn't involved in making that decision. It happened no. within the department, or it happened within the. So maybe what you need, and you sort of have this sometimes, but you need a sort of dictator in charge of this project, and he reports directly directly to the minister mm. for a big project like this would not be unreasonable. Mm. Spending all the department's capital money in five years. And he is personally accountable and re- or she, of course, yeah, responsible for making sure that this thing comes in on time, on budget and right. And he's been there from the beginning. And you start him, he, she, has been there since the beginning. <laughs> Jesus, now you said that. I'm never going to get it right. But they, <clears throat> they, he's there from the beginning and it's all down to him all the way through. It might be 20-year contract, this. You're going to pay him 200000 a year for 20 years. And when it opens... It won't be 20 years, but when it opens <clears throat> on time, on budget, on design, he can have a million quid bonus, mm. right? But only if those things are true. Mm. And that way you will get accountability and he will make bloody sure that he goes to the minister every now and again and says, mm. Minister, you know, we said we were going to do X, Y, and Z. And the minister says yes. And he says, well, because of the decision by your mate in the roads department, we're not going to have any access roads built to this hospital now. So either we've got to build them ourselves at a cost of X million, or you've got to accept the whole project's going to be put off by, by two years. And the minister, if he's got any sense, says, oh, sod that. And he goes around to the tra- and beats up the transport minister. Yeah. And then they all change it, or he goes to cabinet or whatever. Yeah. But there's none of that goes on. That doesn't happen. No, it doesn't. Because as soon as there's a problem, the first thing they all do is, how can we hide this? Yeah. Well, well, well yeah, there, there is that. But also, there's, there's the first thing that happens when a problem arises within the department is we have this attitude of wheel out the minister and media with very stony faces will lean across, but you're this, the, book, the book stops with you, minister. Which it and, does. And so why don't we allow the minister to go back to what I said earlier on, which you told me couldn't be done. Well, no, why don't, I, I, why I, don't I, we allow the minister to sack people? I, 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 I shouldn't have said it couldn't be done. I'd love to see it done. And well, well, it can be done if we decide it's going to be done. If you go out to people in the street now and you said, if a civil servant or a public employee is found to be um, delinquent in performing their uh, their uh, duties should they be sacked? Well, of course, there'd be a ninety-five percent vote. Yes, mm. and we don't we ignore all that. Mm. We just expect poor buggers like you and me to continue paying our taxes to pay the price for it. So, so coming back to the most frustrating thing about economics at the moment that we opened up, we said it was inefficiencies. Why and do we always end up with health? 
think I think you might have a bit of influence on that. Maybe I do. So <laughs> let me get away from health before you go off on your new line. Because what I was going to say was, okay. it was always thought that delegation was one of the ways this could be resolved because you could put things down to a lower level, mm. and at a lower level you'd have more people who knew about it because they'd be local people and they'd be doing it for their own communities and they'd feel more inclined to make sure they got it right. Don't think that's worked in the in the the, the, the fine tuning, but theoretically you could give it to local authorities who get loads and loads and loads of money. Right now, I'm looking at my bit of paper again. Now, what about this? What costs more in terms of price per square meter? Right, the shard in central London, that massive big monstrosity, and Croydon Council's headquarters. The bill for doing up Croydon Council's headquarters was greater per square metre than that for building the Shard. Britain's tallest skyscraper. Croydon has gone bust three times in the last two years, each time issuing a Section 114 notice, which is a prelude to, to bankruptcy. An independent review found that Croydon was led by people who avoid unwelcome and inconvenient feedback and failed to focus on the budgetary crisis engulfing them. The council's chief executive walked away with a 437,000 payout. Now, I must admit, I've just read that out from the spectator, so in case they want to sue me for something, um, I'll send them your address. Um, so that, and there's loads more examples of that sort of thing, millions of them, where local authorities, Do you think who should you... have been the best people, turn out to be the worst people. But do you think sort of these examples, and, and again, I'm not pitting Ireland and, you know, against the UK in this one, but do you think that there's more examples of that happening in the UK because there is yes. more money in the local authorities? Yes, that's they're, they're, exactly for that reason. Yeah. yeah. Um, and there's more power in the local authorities. Yeah. Now, there is a limit to that power. Yeah. Because if they're really naughty, the government can get rid of them. But that's a very unpopular thing to do because you're going against an elected mandate. Yeah. But you see, one of the things that I think um, makes a difference in England as well is is the rates. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the rates actually are quite a low proportion of the money that a council spends. I think, I think on average, the rates accounts for twenty percent of the local authorities' performance, the rest comes from central government of general taxation. In Ireland, of course, there's a business rate, but it doesn't raise that much money. And there's no, there, there is this silly little new property tax that they brought in. I'm not by any means sure that the local authorities get that. I don't know if they do or not. I don't think they do. So local authorities have got no local impetus to spend the money wisely. In England, if they don't spend the money wisely and they threaten to put up their council tax by 50%, mm. they'll be voted out They'll be voted out at the next election mm. without a shadow of a doubt. And numerous councils have been voted out for exactly that purpose. Mm. And you should make that easier by having a sort of callback process, which they've got for MPs, but they don't have for councils. So they should do that. And in Ireland, I think one of the things we should do is go back to the rates. And before people start forming queues outside my house to beat me up, I would say that we should go back to the rates. And what we should do is there's certain things we should hand over to local authorities. 
and mm. we give them the money, which is exactly the same amount of money that we uh, are currently spending at national level, and we transfer that to them locally, and we reduce the number of people centrally um, as well. Well, I, I, you, you, a couple of things with that. You would have seen recently that the Boundaries Commission has met, and we're actually going to increase the number of uh, of 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 TDs. I think we have to have a TD for every is it somewhere between yeah. twenty and thirty thousand people. Uh, I'm not sure. I mean, the more we have these conversations, the more I, the the difference between Ireland and the UK in terms of scale and and distribution. Um the more they, they're they're highlighted to me. So um, you know, we talked before the population of Ireland is similar to the population of Manchester. Yeah. I, I can't remember when she's slightly larger now. Manchester or, or, no, or Ireland. Ireland. Um I, I know this to be the case. Well when I came back from the UK, I worked in Roundtrees and at that stage Roundtrees were making Kit Kats. Mm. Um, Roundtree sold more Kit Kats in Manchester than they did in the whole island of Ireland. Well, and Nigeria used to sell more Guinness in Nigeria, and they, they, they used to make more Guinness in Nigeria yeah. than they did in Ireland. In, in James's case, they still yeah. do. Yeah. Um, but then you said there was something you said to me many years ago. So um, I don't know whether this stat holds true, but you followed up with a very important point. Um, like, how many? I know you're you're going you're getting excited now. No, I was going. I'm saying, God bless your memory. Roughly how many hospitals? Roughly how many hospitals are there? Oh now? yeah. I mean, you, in I think, Ireland, yeah, you it's mentioned fifty-seven. Them. Not fifty-seven, is it? They're, yeah, they're not all big ones. All right, but I think at the time you said because I, I used to quote it, and I, I thought it was something like thirty-one or thirty-two. Well, it depends what sort of hospitals you're talking about. Okay, but even that number of hospitals, when you think again. Greater Manchester served by two hospitals. Oh yeah. Um, where are you going to find thirty-one? Let's say there's thirty-one hospitals. Where are you going to find thirty-one sets of hospital managers? Where are you? Well, going you to- don't find thirty-one. Uh, this is where the problem always is. You close down all the little ones. So you won't need thirty-one. What you'll do, what you do, is what they've been trying to do for years. I know. I want to move away from health. I'm just taking that same same example, or that 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 same message that's in that, which is a problem in Ireland about scale and distribution. And what you're proposing is that we give more back to local authorities, Mm. and therefore we'd have thirty local authorities, or maybe more, around the country. Yeah. Um, and if we give them budgets... Well, no. Spent- I wouldn't say that, actually, because I don't think you, you, you've jumped from one figure and assumed it's also viable for mm-hmm. local authorities. It isn't. What I think is that we've got... I, I agree there should be more TDs, but there shouldn't be so many local authorities. It's ridiculous. We've got all rationalise the local authorities. Yeah, yeah rationalise right. them down to, say, eight okay. regional or semi-regional Major authorities. So I you would have... still, I would still suggest it would be a major challenge to get eight competent management teams. To I never them. said it was going to be easy. <laughs> That's my standard. Get out for everything, you know. <laughs> but no. But actually, you are making a good point because of the way things work in Ireland, where it is very locally oriented, mm. and people are. Um, invested mm. um, socially and, and mentally in their local services. They never seem to realise 
that their local services could be so much better if instead of going, you know, half a mile to some little service provision centre, they were prepared to go on a bus and go 10 miles to the Mm -hmm. super-duper all-swinging-all-dancing service centre where they could get everything done nice and easy, Mm -hmm. whatever that service is. And so we're not prepared to do that because we know, before we know where we are, who's that stupid bugger with the hat in Kerry? You know, he'll be he'll suddenly turn up everywhere. How can you kill local people? <laughs> Someone should tell him to go and do one. He's elected official. He's an elected. He certainly is an elected official, and and you know he he represents his constituents. So I can't deny that. No. But what I do say is, we shouldn't have national policy decided like that. No, no, the I, people I, at the top should be yeah. should be planning, not yeah. doing. Detailed service stuff. Detailed service stuff yeah, should be no, in I agree. I disagree with that. Um, I kind of feel as we went around the houses and I sort of feel mm. satisfied that we've kind of landed. Usually, where are we? Too many inefficiencies. Yeah. It's the same always, thing every time. Yeah. Can't we always, always blame the politicians. That. We can't always blame the politicians. Yes, there are some. No. I, I agree with you. It would be wonderful. It would be so refreshing for a politician to come out when he's asked that question and minister to say, hang on a second, it's not to do with me. Mm. You know, I didn't make that decision. I And, and, I, I, and I think uh, I think their stock would go up with everybody for issuing that kind of a, an honest statement, but I don't see it happening. Maybe five or ten minutes left, um, going back up into economics, and uh, we're facing into a budget, and and uh, both UK and Ireland are trying to combat inflation, and and I, I, I'm always struck by the very blunt instruments that we have when it comes to combating inflation, and and by and large, it's about increasing interest rates. We're not going to be quantitative easing or printing more money. So it's about increasing interest rates. If we well, increase interest rates, yeah. we reduce inflation. Now, just pause for a second and think about that. Now, I understand, I think we all understand the idea being that if, if money's cheap, people will go out and buy things. If there's more if there's more demand, they put the pressure on supply, so prices go up. So we bring down interest rates so people don't spend, they, they, they you know relax the spending, so there's less demand. If there's less demand, there's less pressure on supply and prices come back down again. And the basket that makes up, the inflation basket, the elements that make that up, if they were to include mortgage repayments, Mm -hmm. then the automatic effect of increasing interest rates would be to increase inflation. But because mortgage repayments don't sit in the inflationary basket, we yeah. don't see that, but we still see putting up interest rates causes a problem for people. Oh, the solutions always cause problems for people. But 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 I still don't see this this particular problem being resolved solely with in with, with uh, an increase in interest rates. And well, hang then, on, start from a different position. Go, oh. and a different position is that inflation. That's what I was saying at the beginning, is caused by an increase in the money supply. Full stop. 
there is more money chasing the same or fewer goods, prices go up. Yeah, so, so to right. control the money supply. So we, to we, control we the money supply, you do. there's a number of things you can do. One is you can use the same money to do more work with, right? So that's what I've been saying about improving efficiency. Yeah. You can use the same volume of money to produce more economic activity. Yeah, get that. That, yeah. that will be anti-inflationary yeah. if you did it properly. Now, you know, just a limit to how far you can go properly, but that's it. Another thing you can do is look at ways of addressing problems which don't involve just giving people more money. Because one of the interesting things that you can, there's loads of research has shown this in the past, is that if you say the government will provide this for you and because we're doing it in bulk, it will get much cheaper, actually never happens. It always gets more expensive. If you say... Well, what we'll do instead is we'll give you the money, Joe Soap, and you you can buy it for yourself. So let's say, for the sake of argument, um, if it was something like, uh, oh, I don't know, road sweeping, right? I want the road outside my house swept and some little fellow comes down with a cart and says, I'll do that for you, Governor, 10 quid a year. Oh, 10 quid, that's it. And maybe I was given, given 15, so I've made more from it. It always shows that when people are left to spend money or their own money for themselves, they do it much more efficiently than the government does it for them. But you're still... So that's another thing you can do. Okay, but you're, okay, but you're still in those scenarios, in that latest scenario. And I think what's going to happen in this budget as well... Um, they're, we're going to give people money in the form of yeah, some, of some kind of tax adjustment is going to be money given to people. And so, again, you go back to the money supply. Um, if you lower taxes, you're increasing the money supply into the economy. Well, the only thing I would say, and it's the only area where I would agree to borrowing, personally, is for major capital expenses. And they have a yeah. fantastic effect on the economy. Yeah. So if we... Um, decided we were going to build a new railway line from Galway to Rosslare, which would link in with all the lines that are on the way already, right? So we'd start to get back to having a proper rail network. So you don't always have to go to Dublin to go somewhere else. Yeah. Um, if we did that, let's say that would cost, I don't know, I mean, I'm guessing, say it's 10 billion. Mm. I'm sure it's more, much more than that, but say it's 10 billion. Um, we would get a massive economic return from doing that. So yeah. borrow the money, pay it back over 20 years, 50 years, yeah. whatever it is, and that's fine. And I've got no problem with doing that. And that money is not in the calculation. No, it's that's, not. That's not yeah. inflation. capital spend, yeah. Any money that you use for a genuinely economic process that produces economic activity on the whole is not going to be inflationary. But but inflationary by its nature and where we are at the moment is is it there's a short term focus, so we all want to try and get inflation down. Yes. And okay, let me put it this way to you: You're Minister of Finance, um, you're facing into a budget surplus, um, you've got to make some decisions. There is a squeezed middle in Ireland. We uh, of course there is. Back, you know that there are people who are, and we're both in it. 
Yeah, yeah, and and they are struggling at the moment. So, um, what do you do? You know, in one hand you you're trying to combat inflation. In the other hand, you're under well, political pressure, significant political pressure. To yeah, you know, you've got to be realistic about these things. If you're sitting there with a pocket full of money, you have to give some of it back to the people, and you have to give in some way, right? Whether it's subsidising public transport or whatever it is, even if it's tax, although I accept that a straightforward tax cut is might be inflationary. It doesn't have to be inflationary, but it might be inflationary because uh, it's not actually increasing the net amount of money in the in the money supply because it was money that the government was going to spend instead uh, before. So, well, unless, I don't know. unless it just contributes to a, por- a surplus. Well, yeah. I mean, if you just put it in a box in the safe in the corner of the minister's office and say, yeah. okay, we're not going to do that. Yes, that's deflationary. Yeah. Of course, you've reduced the amount of money yeah, money supply. But in practice, we're not always going to be able to do that. So I would use some of it to pay off the debt, some of it to give people a tax break, and some of it to pay for capital expenditure. And there probably are some innovative ideas as well. I mean, I do, you know, you mentioned there are even things like Rather than having a tax break, which is, you know, it's just a, one of these universal across the board giveaways yeah. um, of having something that is a little bit more targeted, like subsidized public transport or, or you know, something that actually people are going to spend their money on. Um, but it wouldn't be as inflationary if, if you were to subsidize that in some way and maybe encourage people to use public services. Well, a lot of the problem in the past has been if you suddenly, and in fact, the Tories found this under Mrs. Thatcher, it took them a good five years to get the balance right. It was quite painful at five years, as we both remember. Mm. But they did eventually get the balance right. Mm. But if you just give people a big tax break, then they do one of two things. If the economy is in depression, they tend to save it. Mm. Stick it in the bank. Well, that's deflationary, but you can't rely on them doing that. They're likely to say, "Go on a splurge, mm. buy a car, buy this, buy that, buy what you know, washing machine, whatever it is that they mm. want to buy." And they're great. We've got the money. They would do that. And our because it happens suddenly, the the domestic economy probably can't, and factories can't. Build up the extra supply cooking, yeah, so it sucks, yeah, yeah. sucks in imports, yeah. which are generally regarded as being a bad thing. They're not always a bad thing, mm. but that the historical thing. We don't seem to worry too much about imports now, mm. but um, that's certainly uh, an issue. Mm. Uh, so, you know, it's always a balance. As well, you know, even when you mentioned Thatcher there. The world was a different place. The culture in the UK was different. The culture now is a little bit different. Well, it wasn't that different, you know, and it wasn't that different in Ireland either. You remember in, in hockey's time in the in the eighties, mm. and he had to go on the television and more or less wag his finger at people. We've been spending more money than we've been earning. Yeah, and, and he and, was right. Yeah, but and, and Thatcher actually saying, you know. Any housewife knows that if you spend more than you earn, the result is penury. Hmm. And, and she was right about that as well. Yeah, but 
we're not experiencing that at the moment. That's that's where I keep coming back to this budget. Well, we are, we're experiencing the bit that's about spending too much money, which we did on both occasions. Thatcher inherited a huge public spending problem. We, I mean, don't forget the Labour Party had to call a bloody international monetary fund in to sort it out in the 70s. And in Ireland, it was because... We were spending loads of money on uh, unemployment benefit and the like and so on. So uh, I think we've got to get back to the discipline of money being for uh, – we, we use money for wealth creation. And that just spending money, just feeding money into the occasion, if you listen to some of the more modern economists, never works. Mm. People always quote Keynes and say – well, that's what Keynes did after the war. No, it's not, actually, because Keynes never, ever proposed that we should borrow to meet current expenditure. He only suggested that we should borrow to produce capital, you know, yeah. rebuild. God knows there was enough to rebuild after the war. Yeah. Um, and, and so that's what that's the way he went. He saw his theory works mm. on the basis of capital investment. It's not what that bloody French idiot came up with a few years ago. The the spending of the money itself does not help. Mm. It will probably hinder by driving up inflation, if nothing else, mm. right? And so we've got to get back to the rigour. It's a word I'm coming to use much more often these days. Got to get back to the rigour of what is the effect of this spending? Is the effect going to be... Increase wealth, increase GDP, and thereby increase mm. well-being for the uh, the population. Maybe because they've been able to earn some more money at work, or do some more work, or get a job, yeah. rather than getting a handout. Mm. Right? We need to get back to that rigor. It's cause and effect, and we've completely forgotten the cause and effect link. Yeah. Yeah. There's something very basic about that as well, isn't there? Yeah, um, it's easy to explain. Yeah. Um, so look, let's introduce some rigor to the uh, timing of our pod this to today. We've probably gone on um, at the point where we need to wrap up. Um, quick parting updates on on all matters sporting. Mm-hmm. Uh, Irish football team uh, are probably out of the Euros given the performance yeah. of the weekend. Very good, one of the one of the performances at the weekend, which I would have to say I was quite surprised with, uh, was England against Argentina. Yeah, it showed up that the England team has got some guts after all, mm. Mm. Uh, which I don't think we suspected. Do, do you think uh, the sending off was was instrumental in well, the blowing yeah, guts that we probably, saw? Probably, probably. Yeah. I think that and the fact that we found a bloke who knows how to kick twenty seven points in wow. one game. Yeah, and it's I clever. Mean, it's, it's, it's clever, magnificent. Very clever. So mm. that bodes well. Mm. We'll see. One yeah. game does not a competition make. No, um, there was a lot of doom and gloom about that team. There was, yeah. I thought the most unlucky team of the whole competition was Fiji. Oh, stop! Don't oh God, yeah. I was so pleased when he took that last pass to go and get the score, mm. which would have done it. And oh dear God, so I couldn't my, believe that he dropped it. My bet, and they deserve to win. Wait, I needed Fiji. I needed Fiji to... Yeah, and it uh, didn't work. 
No, well, I think my position, we're going to be France or Ireland or South Africa. I now think it will be Ireland or South Africa. And I was damned impressed by the South Africans. I thought they looked really, really good. Yeah. Uh, I yeah, I kind of backed South Africa from the start, but I was impressed by the French as well. Uh, I thought mm. they, they smothered Scotland. and uh, But we shall see. Um, we shall. And Premier League back on this weekend. I'm going to see it. You're going to see Tottenham. You're going to see Tottenham and Sheffield. And hopefully you're going to report this hooligan that sits in your locality. To yeah, well, it's funny that, actually, because my, my daughter Anna um, listened to that podcast and mm. um, of course she features in it, in that section. Yeah. And she sent me, because uh, obviously I'll go and stay with her when I go over to the match, and she sent me a a text that said, Daddy, if you talk to that sweary man, I won't let you go. <laughs> so, she didn't fear uh, for you. Fear for you getting the I'll just, I'll, I'll just tell the, the, the steward to watch out for him. Yeah, yeah. Honor is satisfied. Always a pleasure. I As always, as you say. Have a wonderful time at Tottenham. And enjoy, I will. Enjoy London. Say hello to everybody first. And uh, I look will, certainly. The next week. Yeah, jolly good. All right. You mind See yourself. See you then. Thank Take you. Care. All the best. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you'd like to keep up to date with us, then go to our main homepage on Spotify and press the notification bell or the follow button. Then, up to date, you will be kept. This podcast is a production by Artificial Hipsters. Thank you.